Our scripture reading this morning is from John chapters 15 and 16. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates the Father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. The word of the Lord. The upper room discourse, that's what John 13 to 18 is called. And that's what we've been looking at over the past couple of weeks and we'll continue to look at. It's Jesus' final words to his disciples on the night before he's going to die. And one of the things we have to remember is we're in this series or the, these past couple of weeks and today and the next couple of weeks is Jesus did not come just to save individuals, to offer them forgiveness, nor did he come to start a religion. Rather, what he came to do is what he said, which is to inaugurate or kick off or begin the kingdom of God which is the rule and reign of God and the restoration of all creation. Jesus' death and resurrection ushers that in, and his purpose is to renew and restore all of creation, including humanity, under the rule and reign of God. And yet, the plan of God was not just Jesus, but also Jesus' disciples. His plan was for them to continue to push out, to spread and grow God's kingdom, his rule and reign and restoration over the whole earth. And so here he is on his final night, and we have to think, if, if he knows this is before he's going to leave, that whatever he's saying is vitally important, that they should be taking notes right now. And one of the things that's really challenging, so one of the things that Jesus says is, you are going to be hated and persecuted. People will reject you. I'm going to reread what Sheila just read for us in verses 18 to 21, where Jesus underlines it to them. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember that the, world, the, the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would, will also keep yours but all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. 
So just to break apart a couple of the things that are in here, we have to see that word world the way that John is using it here. And we, on one level, need to slow down a little bit because I think there's a tendency in Christian circles to use the world to refer to any people we don't like. And so the world is always at odds against Christianity, and John's laying that out here, and he does in the rest of his gospel as well. But there's a tendency in us in using Christianese to say the world when we really mean we want to create that us-them political division, of, and not just politics, or it's anything we don't like that we associate with certain other people, the media, the culture, the whatever, it's them, it's the world. And some of that is sort of true, but we need to remember the way that John uses world, it's a technical term in John's writing, in Revelation, in the Gospel of John, and in 1, 2, and 3 John. And when he's saying world, he means specifically humanity collectively set against God. Humanity set against God and under the power of sin and spiritual evil. And so he's including in this term, the way that John uses it, the cultural, political, and economic systems, all of which are set against worshiping God. Because no political system, no economic system, no cultural system is ever fully in line with worshiping the God of the universe. The world, therefore, is all of humanity in its natural state, opposed to Jesus Christ and those who follow him. The world will hate you. You are because you are my disciples. So he's specifically talking to them about being not really of the world anymore. And this is one of those challenging things, but he's talking about their identity as people. Okay? So he says, I've chosen you, you're not of the world. You were of the world, is basically the implication. And that that preposition of, you're of the world, it's it's a belonging term. You're of the family of such and such. All of us by nature are of the family of the world, set against God. But Jesus says, I chose you out of the world to be in Christ. Every one of his disciples is now given a new identity, a new belonging. And as a result, Jesus says, they will hate and persecute you. And those are very strong words in the English. Um, the, the lexical range in the Greek is, includes the strength of hatred and persecution, but it, it can also include just being rejected. That you, if you are going to be my disciple, will probably lose family or friends, acceptance by people. In that day and age, position in your community as well as your family. And these terms can also include just general hostility, strong and violent emotion to political oppression and actual violence, to being viewed as not just wrong, but harmful, a threat, something that needs to be stopped. And Jesus is telling them in a few more words, if you follow me, you will face opposition. Why? He says it in verse 21, on account of my name. He sums it up pretty quickly. You will face opposition on account of my name. People will hate you, persecute you on account of my name. It's because of Jesus. And so one of the things we need to be aware of is that he says, on account of my name. There might be a lot of reasons why people oppose you, reject you, that have nothing to do with Jesus. He's not talking about you are being persecuted because you're obnoxious. It might be because you're obnoxious. 
where you're overly political and people feel that partisanship and they just don't like it. Or you're selfish. You know, you can't, <laughs> we have to be careful. Like, you could say, like, hey, look, I'm being persecuted at work. I've not been getting a raise. I feel like people don't like me. And, and it could be because of Jesus, but it could very well be because you're lazy. You're not very good at your job. Or you have a difficult personality to work with. Don't blame Jesus for your own personality faults. <laughs> we all need to cultivate that representation of who Jesus is. Jesus says, they will hate you because they hated me. And what did Jesus do? He writes it out in verses 22 to 25. I'm just going to summarize, not read these verses to you, but basically Jesus says, I came and they saw me. So I was incarnate. I spoke, and we know Jesus' teaching. He had the moral ethics of the Sermon on the Mount, the turn the other cheek, love your enemies, as well as do not commit adultery, do not lust, do not murder, do not call people a fool. He had this entire moral ethic that he taught, and he made these claims in what he spoke, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus came and was seen, he spoke and taught, and he did mighty deeds, like healing the blind or raising the dead. And for that, they hated him. And we have to remember that the persecution or opposition that Jesus is talking about can often feel like it's just people attacking your viewpoints or even you personally. But underneath, behind all of it is always Jesus, if he is who you are representing and following. It's Jesus they're, re they're rejecting. It's Jesus that the world's systems want nothing to do with. There is spiritual darkness that wants nothing to do with the light. And you can't soft coat that. Why is this? Because Jesus is always a threat to every power and every personal autonomy. In that first century, Jesus was a threat to the emperor. He was a threat to actually the Roman imperial cult. There was this kind of way of viewing the emperors in ancient Rome that they were divinely appointed and in a sense divine themselves. Domitian was the emperor during the time that John probably wrote the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation. Domitian was an emperor who required the titles or added the title to his name of Lord and God. And there was this sect of people that were claiming that some Jewish rabbi who was crucified 60 years earlier, 30 years earlier, that he was Lord and God. You can't have two lords and gods. The emperor knew it, and they would squash Christianity wherever they could. All cultures, all governments, all economies, and all people by nature reject Jesus. Because at its root, Jesus is claiming to be Lord and Savior. And so he's constantly asking of us and of every system, who or what is actually your Lord and Savior? Nobody who studies Jesus, meets him in his day in life, or, or studies him now, responds with mild indifference. It's either absolute anger and they want to kill him, or they fall down and worship him. 
A number of years back, novelist Anne Rice decided to write a book about the life of Jesus. She wanted to write a new novel about the life of Jesus. And she said whenever she did these, uh, these novels, they were always historical, and she would study the culture of the day and age. And she would really understand and dig deep into the scholarship, so she started to do that on the life of Jesus before she wrote Out of Egypt. And she was blown away by the type of scholarship she found. She said, on one level, I've never seen more written about any human being or cultural period than that of Jesus in all the highest academic levels. And yet, I've also never seen so much animosity towards any historical figure. This is what she wrote. I discovered in this field, New Testament studies, some of the worst and most biased scholarship I'd ever read. Many of these scholars who devoted their life to New Testament scholarship disliked Jesus. Some pitied him as hopeless, others sneered, and some felt an outright contempt. I'd never come across this kind of emotion in any other field of research. The people who go into Elizabethan studies don't set out to prove that Queen Elizabeth was a fool. They don't personally dislike her or spend their careers trying to pick apart her historical reputation. But that's not the case with Jesus, as anybody who's done New Testament studies knows. People will spend their whole life trying to disprove who he is and what he stands for. Why? Why would that be? Studied more academically than any other person in history, with more vitriolic opposition, it's because Jesus is always a threat to power and to personal autonomy. He makes claims that make a claim on who you are and who's in control. And we either fall down to that or we fight it. And so Jesus warns his disciples in chapter 16, verse 2, they're going to put you out of the synagogue. They're going to even kill you. And they're going to say, I think they're doing a good thing. I think they're helping God out. There will come a time when you will be rejected, even killed, and people will think they're doing a good thing. Does that feel familiar to anyone today? You know, our current cultural climate is becoming increasingly secular and actually more hostile to Christianity. Most of you know this. Most of you have experienced this on some level. The political volume has increased, laws have changed, the, the media creates, and social media in particular creates this kind of you know, energetic force. There's issues of sexuality and gender and always exclusivity of who Jesus is and what he claimed. And Christianity is now seen in, in America as a hindrance, as the problem. It's a hindrance to cultural progress and human happiness. And it's likely to get more challenging to be a Christian, at least in my lifetime. There's not going to, it's a direction that it's going. And actually, you can read more extensively on this. It's been going in this direction for 300 years. It's not just the past 20. Hostility to Christianity and to Jesus seems to be on the rise here. But a couple of caveats. One is, we have to be careful when we use the word persecution or opposition and hostility, because sometimes it's actually justified, honestly. The church has a, a checkered history. People have dealt with hypocrisy in their families, amongst leadership. People feel like 
Christianity has embedded itself in certain circles too much politically. People have looked at the um, unhelpful and even evil past of Christianity with regards to race in America. And of course, the church is filled with abuse. The Catholic Church had its scandals. The Protestant Church decided to follow suit because we are sinful and broken people. People at the highest levels of evangelical worship have fallen, taking advantage of people and their power. And it makes it really hard to trust Christianity. Some critique and rejection of Christianity actually makes sense, depending on the person. The other thing is that I think that we can feel the intensity of what feels like persecution, and there's a little bit of our personal cognitive bias. I, I'm not a, a good in psychology, so I'm just going to kind of make some stuff up here. Um, I think we all have it. There's terms for these things. I just don't know them, okay? So we have a tendency to inflate ourself and proximity and now. An example of that is if I'm driving in a car with some friends to a football game or a big concert, I could be on 495 and, and, and like know that I'm going to a place where tens of thousands of people are going, and it feels like everybody's going to the game, but not everybody's going to the game. We have a tendency to feel like whatever's happening most recently is the most important thing. If somebody asks most people, hey, what's your favorite movie of all time, they are much more likely to say something they've seen in the past couple of years than something they saw 20 years ago, even though 20 years ago they were like, that was the best movie I've ever seen. Recency bias, locality bias, all these things, make it so that we feel like today and now is worse than it's ever been or can be. So we have historic and global amnesia when it comes to persecution. The church has always dealt with being on the outs when it has been faithful to Christianity, faithful to Jesus. The first centuries were filled with this. In Rome, under Rome, the first couple of centuries, Christianity was constantly being oppressed violently. In 64 AD, Nero, the emperor who was slightly crazy, decided to blame a fire in Rome on all the Christians. He had them arrested, executed. He took many of them and had them impaled and put on sticks in, around the city and lit them on fire while they were still alive in order to lighten up the skies with these horrible Christians. In 177 AD in Lyon, France, a mob of people began to raise up anger at Christians, and they, they began to go in mobs and just drag them out of their homes. Men, women, children, didn't matter the age, to beat them to death or drag them into the arenas where they filled stadiums with people to watch Christians being tortured and executed. Again, men, women, and children. In 303 AD, Domitian was emperor, and he put out an empire-wide decree that every single person had to offer sacrifices to the gods or they would be executed. This was specifically to execute Christians who could not worship other gods. And yet, over those first three centuries, the church spread and grew. In the global church today, there is incredibly violent and hostile persecution to Christianity, much worse than anything that we've seen. You go to places like Iran or Pakistan or trying to be the underground church in China or even own a Bible in North Korea. If you convert to Christianity in many parts of the world, you'll be kicked out of your family, lose your job. You can deal with mob violence on a moment. 
And sometimes political oppression is there where you will be arrested and face execution if you do not follow what's being asked. And yet, globally, you know what's happening? The church is growing and spreading. It's shrinking here. It's growing and spreading in the places it's most persecuted. In Nepal, about five or six years ago, it became illegal to convert anyone. When I visited there, I was told not to preach any sort of a conversion thing, like an altar call of Billy Graham sort of thing. I was like, don't worry, I'm Anglican. We don't do that. Um, we just do it every week at the table. In the 1950s, there were zero Christians in Nepal. Today, there's 1.5 million, and it's one of the fastest-growing religions, in spite of it being illegal to change your religion to Christianity. Christianity has always, always been in opposition to spiritual and cultural powers. So we should expect the same. So then the question is, what do we do in the face of opposition? I honestly think that if we're looking ahead to the next 10 or 20 or 30 years, the best place to look is back to the first, second, and third century. In those first couple of centuries, the church had no power. They were marginalized. They were persecuted horribly. Go read about it. But the kingdom of God continued to grow and spread. A couple of things marked that early church that I want us to think about. One was that they had established a new type of community. The early church in those first couple of centuries established a new community that was not born of status, because in that ancient culture, you only were in certain status groups. As Paul says in Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek slave nor uh, free male nor female. You were all one in Christ. It's not that those differences didn't exist. It's that they didn't matter. And that was completely countercultural to the Greco-Roman worldview and understanding. And it was completely, deeply subversive, subversive to the values that held everything together, that it held everything together in certain social strata and the ways that you could take advantage of that. Christianity overthrew that and said, regardless of where you fit socially in a, in a culture, in the community, in Christ we are all one. It established a new moral ethic completely counter to the first century and first couple of century Roman uh, cultural understanding of things. You know, one of the ways it was most radical was with regards to sexuality. In that ancient culture, they were, uh, they, you could have sex with just about anybody if you were of a certain power. It was okay for a man of certain status to literally have sex with anybody. And it was actually kind of expected as a way of demonstrating power. Christianity came along and said, no, there is a covenant between man and woman before God meant to create new creation, and that is the bounds in which it is meant to be. There's something spiritual and powerful going on. It overturned these values of honor and shame by creating a way of humility driven by forgiveness of enemies that was completely counter to a culture that was trying to seek status and bring retribution on anybody who opposed you. It called forth a radical love across all societal barriers. That early church was a new community. It established a new moral ethic, and it was a new version of justice and mercy that the Romans did not understand. Christians were generous in their care of the weak, and the poor, and not just their own. 
Emperor Julian, who was an apostate, he kind of grew up in a, a, in a Christian home under Constantine or related to him, but he rejected Christianity and wanted to do away with it, but he constantly got frustrated because Christians tended to grow because people liked them. He wrote a letter to one of his high priests in Galatia. It is sh- shameful that our own people lack support from us when the Christians support not only their own poor but ours as well. Christians cared for the sick when everybody else abandoned them. You know, in ancient Rome, it was normative to throw out babies you did not want, literally into the woods, down sewer drains, just get rid of them. Sparta was famous for having gotten rid of all deformed children. Anytime you had one that wasn't perfect, you executed it, got rid of it, exposure. Christians came along and adopted them keeping them from being taken and trafficked, which often happened to young boys or girls who were left out for exposure. The Christians gave of themselves to establish justice and mercy for the vulnerable, the weak, the helpless, and yet they were horribly persecuted. Horribly persecuted. And yet, people of low status and high status wanted in. And the church grew and spread. There's a calling to us as a church, and to the church in the 21st century, the church in America, the church in the West, the church today. It is to be a counter-cultural community marked by humility and generosity, willingness to confess our sin, admit our failure, even admit that we don't know things. To have a generosity of spirit with those we disagree with, the church should be a countercultural community that is much wider in race and ethnicity, age and ability, kind of welcoming all things of different age, ability, education, politics. We should have people who disagree with us politically, who are in different education levels. And honestly, I think very important is to have and, and recognize and celebrate the marriages and um, the difference of marriage and family status. That singleness or marriage, having kids or not, doesn't make you in or out more. We recognize the value of all people as they are right now. That's the church that is counter to our cultural stand. It says there's certain things that make you in, certain performances you have to achieve. The gospel calls us to a community of equal value, even with our differences. And it calls us to a deeper community than our culture lives in. Our culture lives in, com- in a community that is committed to, um, to just as long as we agree on just about everything, and it's subdivided, and it's a, a social media community, but not an in-person community, and it's a transient community. And I think we're called into commitment to one another, to openness and vulnerability, to incarnate life together, not just digitally, and to be a community that is marked by grace and a culture that is now filled with shame. We're called to be a counterculture, not just in community, but in our worldview as well. I think one of the biggest deficits in the Western church is that we lack a coherent theology. There's intellectual incoherence in what most of us believe. We have not thought through deeply enough a biblical and historic Christian theology that impacts all of our life. And that means that that your theology is not driven by your politics the other way around. 
that you and I are aware of our cultural assumptions. Did you know that we can get really upset at kind of some of the moral changes in our culture today, but they're actually born out of this view that we all buy into, that we're all autonomous beings that can do whatever we want. That's how we live. That's how we choose our churches, right? And it feeds into the entire way that our culture has gone, that all people go, that we go. Why, what's behind what we believe? Why do we believe what we believe? And be willing to critique our own traditions. Admit that we might be wrong sometimes. But each of us need to do the work of cultivating a deep theology, a whole biblical and a historically understood Christianity that recognizes why we believe what we believe, what it means to be human, and why we've said things like the Apostles' Creed. A Christian theology that is thought through and lived out. We need to be a countercultural community with a countercultural worldview that has a supracultural justice and mercy. You know, justice and mercy are big things today, and that's a good thing. The movement in the society today amongst uh, Gen Z, millennials, to say justice matters, that is a good thing. Don't get anxious about that. This is a really good thing. Racial equality is a good thing. Caring for the poor and the weak and the immigrant is a good thing. And if anything, if the first couple of centuries tell us anything, Christians should be at the forefront of carrying out and living out a justice and mercy that supersedes the values of the culture. That we would live into Matthew 25, where Jesus said, as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. Caring for the aging and the disabled and the unborn and the immigrant and the addicted and the sick and the vulnerable of any sort. A generous love. The love that Jesus talks about is basically one where we take any power, influence, money we have, and we use it always for others' good, not our own. And we live in a culture where you take your power and get your own. The gospel calls us to take any power we have and use it for the good of others, especially those who are weak and vulnerable a supracultural justice and mercy. And I think if we live a countercultural community with a countercultural worldview and a supracultural justice and mercy, you know what will happen? We will still not be cool. If we do all the things that would mark out Christians following Jesus. You know, I've wanted for a long time to find a way to uh, be a Christian, to believe historic Orthodox Christianity and still be liked. I don't know that it's possible. If you're following Jesus, you will face opposition, rejection, and loss at times. What do we do? We fight people, hide them, hide from them, like to escape, or seek to be effective for the kingdom of God. Jesus' warning is not, hey, here's how to avoid persecution. It's here's how to be faithful to follow me. And his worry is not that, you know, you're going to get persecuted, let me give you a way out. It's that when you see opposition, you will give up Christianity. He says it in verse 1 of chapter 16. His fear is that you will fall away. And when persecution comes, you will fall away. 
He does not fear their death. In other words, Jesus is not afraid that you and I might die from opposition. He's afraid rather that with a little bit of a threat, we will abandon Christianity. When it's not popular, when no one else is doing it, when it involves sacrifice in your life, when it's hard. I'm going to jump ahead because we're already at 30 minutes. I had all these really cool things to say. You can put them up there. Proposition, next one. Preposition, it was going to be really cool. And then third, we'll stop there. Your position. Trust me, it was awesome. I find at times that our current cultural trajectory is discouraging. I really do. I find it sometimes scary and even hopeless. But Jesus calls us to a constant hope in spite of the culture around us. One of the ways we get this is because of what Jesus says in chapter 15, verse 19, when he says, I chose you. I chose you out of the world. Jesus says to his disciples, hey, look, you guys didn't decide to follow me. I chose you. And in Ephesians 1, 4, Paul says this, he, God, chose us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless in his sight. Get this, before God said, let there be light, he knew you would be alive right now and in this room. Meaning, you're not in 2022 in the D.C. area by accident. You are here in this season for such a time as this. God chose you to be a teenager for such a time as this. He chose you to be a parent for such a time as this. He chose you to be single and in your 40s or 50s or 60s for such a time as this. We are not here by accident. Before the foundation of the world, he said, I chose you. Do not be afraid. And that's the other thing he tells us. Do not be afraid. We're going to get to this next week, but it's too good to pass over reading more than once. Jesus says at the end of chapter 16, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We follow a Savior who was crucified, died, and was buried. But we follow a Savior who did not stay in that grave. Our hope is in the one who has conquered, and has risen, and he reigns, and is coming again. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you said that in this world we would face opposition. And many of us have felt that. We've dealt with loss of friends, or status. We fear the direction of the country. We fear for our kids. And God, so many of these fears are just driven by our own lack of trust in your sovereignty and goodness. So in us a deep trust in your power and presence with us. Give us the willingness to walk into the steps of cultivating that relationship with you, of thinking well about why we believe what we believe, and living in radical justice, mercy, and community. God, we know that your kingdom is come. 
and we trust that you will bring about your good purposes in your time, in our lives and in this world. Amen. Whatever.